You said you saw him get pepper sprayed? Yes. Tell me about tell me that story first. That's I, I couldn't even tell you what year it was. I worked at McDonald's as a teenager and one day we were all hanging out in the parking lot there, a bunch of kids there, and I don't even know how it started, and all of a sudden Damien was telling some other kid in the parking lot, go ahead, spray me, spray me. And the kid broke out the pepper spray, sprayed him in his face, and he stood there and kind of let out a yell, grabbed a bottle of water, rinsed off his face, and went about his business, face all red, and didn't, didn't really seem to face him. He didn't care at all? No, he was tough. Did he hang out there a lot? Yes, everybody did, I think, at that point in time. It was... A lot of it was before kids started driving, and it would just seem to be the hangout. I mean, as long as the managers at McDonald's would let the kids stay and not kick them out of the parking lot, but... Did you go to school in Warren? Yes. Yeah, okay. Warren and, and raised, graduated from Warren High School. And what year did you graduate? 97. 97, so, and he would have graduated in 98. Yeah. Okay, so he was a year behind you. Yep. What, do you, what else do you remember about it? Like, how, do you remember how you first met him? Um... No. I mean, prob- if I had to guess, probably... Probably McDonald's. Probably there, McDonald's. I mean, we all hung out a lot, like, down at the tennis bubble that, you yeah. know, everyone keeps mentioning. That was a big hangout. And, but to pinpoint an actual time of meeting him, no. Yeah. I mean, just saw him basically every day. I mean, between school and even walking down the street. What kind of student was he? Student-wise, I don't know. I don't know academically. Right. I mean, he what was, was he like, like in a classroom. Was he a class clown, or would he have been a quiet kid? Or um, I think he had his moments at both. Yeah. I mean, he was more of a type that he didn't necessarily bring attention to himself. Didn't shy away from it, but it wasn't like him to start it. It was somebody else starting it, and then he would respond to it? Right. Okay. I mean, that's the way I portrayed him anyways. All around a nice kid. I mean, I know some of people's people's portrayal of him, but I just found him to be a nice guy in general. Yeah. As long as you actually took the time to have a conversation with him, you got to know a completely different side of him than... Mm-hmm the way he looked or the way he dressed. Yeah. He was just a nice guy. He seems like he would open right up if you just walked up to him and were like, treat him like he was normal. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Very much down to earth and friendly. From Your Daily Local and Two Moms Media and Warren PA, this is Smoke, The Disappearance of Damien Sharp. We're your hosts, Brian Hagberg and Stacy Gross. I matched the two guests for this episode up for a reason. One knew Damien, but tangentially. She saw him at the same places, at school, local spots. Like so many people who've talked to me, Jody Holabaugh says she wasn't exactly Damien's friend. They ran in the same circles. The other, regional author and researcher of historical mysteries around northwestern Pennsylvania, Jim Bobgrantz, didn't know Damien at all. And because Damien's case is 20 years old, rather than 200. He's not super familiar with the details. So why have him on? Because Jim is basically just like you. He worked for Xerox. He wears sneakers and he drives the same kind of SUV your neighbor probably does. He's a regular guy. But Jim has spent decades learning to use the resources available to him as a member of the public to satisfy his own curiosity about a number of historical mysteries he's heard starting with the Pickle Barrel murder of 1926. If you think 20 years is a long time ago, try almost 100 or more. Jim's really awesome at trying to find the truth behind big fish stories and knowing when he's tapped all the resources there are. We're going to look at ways you can research rumors just by visiting local places and asking to see stuff. So that story Jody told at the top of this episode, the one about the pepper spray, that's a really good example to use to show you how I do what I do. Transparency is a big thing with me, and I don't want this process to be mystifying. It shouldn't be. It's your right as members of the public to access some of this information, but with great power comes great responsibility. So we're going to talk about 
why you should access information when and what you should and should never do with it. As with most of these interviews, Jody and I talked before we hit record, and we talked afterward too. Interviews for me are best when they're conversations. The tape turning on and off just represents the most formal portion of it. But obviously, my first question when Jody told me she knew a story about Damien and some pepper spray was who the hell sprayed him? And why? Also, like most people who give interviews, Jody couldn't remember the detail of his name. Some people can tell me names all day long, but dates are a crapshoot. Some people remember smells like no one's business, but to match a face to a name? Forget it. In this particular situation, Jody couldn't remember the name of the person who pepper sprayed Damien, so I immediately set out to uncover it. My first step was to post publicly on the podcast Facebook page that I was looking for a person who allegedly pepper sprayed Damien in the McDonald's parking lot. Within an hour, three people had reached out to give me that name, and by 15 minutes after that, I'd reached out to Robert. This, you guys, this is the hardest, most important part of this job. If you hear a story about a person, the first thing on your list to do better be to speak directly with that person, if at all possible. I've used every social media account I have to reach out to folks, and failing that, I've used research databases like Been Verified see if I can find a phone number or an email address with a high likelihood of still working. There's the library, the historical society, we'll get into all of that. For the most part though, I reach out on social media and if the person agrees to talk to me, we text or call each other or we set up a time to sit down. This was a pretty minor thing. Part of my job is to ensure to the best of my ability that I've done my due diligence in reaching out to everyone I possibly can to A, let them know what I'm doing and that my goal is to publish what they tell me. B, to verify that the story I've heard about them actually happened in some fashion or another. And C, to ask them to share their version with me. I tend to open with new people pretty bluntly. Hey, I heard a story about you. I want to know if it's true because I want to tell other people on a podcast. Can you confirm that? Robert responded pretty quickly. Not much to it, really, he wrote back. Drama between us over something. I saw him thinking he was going to fight me and it happened. Robert went on to give me more information, and because it's not relevant to me being able to say to you, Robert told me he pepper sprayed Damien, I won't share it here. It's fine to give me more information than I asked for 100% of the time, and if it's not, I will for sure stop you. Anyhow, that whole thing took just under a week. From collecting Jody's interview, to sitting down to annotate and master the audio, to realizing I did need to find out that guy's name, again, not on tape, but discussed due diligence is important, to trying to find out who I should reach out to as the sprayer of said pepper spray, and then reaching out to that person and verifying the story. With a project like this, the only thing I can really do is collect those stories in your own words and share them in exactly the same form and see what happens when people listen. Memories aren't perfect. Businesses go out of business. People pass away. They retire. There's no way to go back and find a piece of paper to verify every single story we hear. The best we can hope for is a reliable other or others who can hear details and confirm them or debunk them based on their own memories. Out of that, we select the stories about Damien to share with you that are both revealing of who he was beyond a goth kid missing veteran guy, and also as reliable as we can ask for 20 years after the fact. This was a simple issue of housekeeping. I check things before I tell them to you. And I don't share them if I can't check them at all. That's your duty if you decide you want to investigate anything ever. There hasn't been one hour of one day of my life for the past year that hasn't been spent, at least in part, organizing the mental map of my complete archives. This gig is not for sprinters. Damien's story is extreme cross-country. If only my physical and my metaphorical cardio games were equally tight. Alas... So what else did Jody have to talk about in regards to Damien? Well, she wanted to talk about $3,000, so let's check that out. Well, I followed the case from the time it happened, even though I didn't live around here. And I've watched it over the years. I've seen, I followed some Facebook pages that have been come up over the years. I've seen his mother on the news. Then when we moved back, and I found your Facebook page, started following it. Then, I don't know, my husband and I were talking one night and he 
we hung up the phone and I told him to go listen to the podcast and he called me back and he said, hey, he said, we need to offer up some reward money. He said, we have to give his mother some closure. And that's what it's about. I mean, it's about trying to get some people's attention. It's been too long. Somebody around here knows something. And if it's money that's going to make them talk. And if it's not money, I think that's telling too, you know? But I just think it's such a small town and you can't tell me. It's been 20 years. Yeah. Time to talk. We're all older now. We've all got our own kids, our own families. Put yourself in his family's shoes. Mm -hmm. Turn and look at your children. I, I mean, you. we're getting to the ages now where most of us have kids almost that age now. Look at your child. What would you do if it was your kid? Time to start talking. His mother deserves to know. The story about Crime Stoppers offering up a $2,000 reward in June of 2011 is the only story I found in the Times Observer for that year. There was one in August of 2010, and on April 12th of 2012, two small pieces ran on pages A1 and A6 for the 10-year anniversary. Said then-board president Pete Carnevale for the piece, that it is possible that no crime was committed makes Sharp's case an unusual one for Crime Stoppers. Our rewards are based on information that leads to the solving of a crime. This is definitely beyond what we usually do. We feel it would help to have closure on the case. Janine Shanahan told reporter Brian Ferry that, I hope somebody takes the opportunity to call, not just for the money, maybe for peace of mind. Crime Stoppers doesn't need your name, and they don't even really want it, so if you're sketched out by the cops or by me, you should probably give them a call. The number is 1-800-832-7463. And I always wanted to transcribe a number into words on the radio, guys, so for my word people, that's one 800 crime Wow. I can cross that off my list. All right. So look, theoretically, you can call them up, they're, quote, residents working with law enforcement and the courts, end quote, according to a sparse website we'll link to in the show notes. Basically, what happens is you get an ID number, they tell you how to call back and see if you've earned a reward with your tip, and then you get information on that call. If your tip led to an arrest, quote, you'll be told where to go and who to contact for your reward. I mean, yeah, they do make kidnapping movies that start that way, too, but whatever. If you know something about something, there's no easy way to do it. But if you don't care that much about the money, call Crime Stoppers because they're not going to take your name and you don't even have to pick up the reward. If you want a shot at Jody's three grand, you can share your tip with law enforcement, ideally, or Crime Stoppers or me. Either way, it's getting to law enforcement. And if they find Damien, you get paid. But do rewards actually motivate people to share needed information? I have no idea, but luckily NPR does because Cheryl Corley asked the same question in a four-minute listen published on September 17th, 2019. And there's a link to that audio and story in the show notes. According to that piece, the FBI's 10 most wanted list has been offering cash for tips since 1950. Crime stoppers hit the scene in the 70s. An effort between media, law enforcement, and volunteer residents, the system offers typical rewards of around $1,000 funded by private and public local entities wherever Crime Stoppers exists. When the organization raises the dollar amount of its rewards, Crime Stoppers USA chairwoman Barb Bergen told Corley at that time, throwing more publicity and more money at the situation can increase the volume of information brought forward, but it doesn't necessarily do anything for the quality of that information. Ultimately, it's the risk of retaliation or being found out as a snitch, the article explains that people weigh against the value of any reward. And that's going to be different for every single person, but in all cases, the greater the likelihood someone's tip identifies its tipster, or that the tipster is close to the person suspected of having committed the crime, the less likely $2,000 or even $5,000 is going to weigh out evenly. So, in a town like Warren, with 9,000 people in the city and only another 30,000 spread out in the 900 miles surrounding it, will $5,000 do it? Who the hell knows? But between Crime Stoppers and Jody, there are people willing to pay for the one tip that's been missing for 20 years. More than anything for me, it shows that Damien has had a community behind his case for a long time. What motivated Crime Stoppers in 2011 to offer that unprecedented reward isn't spelled out in the article, 
And I've heard around the campfire that two people whose honesty has been impeccable with me from day one have been A, laughed at, and B, hung up on when they called Warren County Crime Stoppers to share information related to Damien's case. All I can tell you is that they're valued sources whose credibility has been proven to me over many years, not just this one. And I invite anyone who's had less than a positive experience calling Warren County Crime Stoppers to tell me about it. I'm not saying Crime Stoppers doesn't care about Damien Sharp. I'm saying if you felt blown off after talking to them, talk to me about it privately and I'll get more information from its board. Give me a reason to bug someone with questions, please. It is apparently my favorite goddamn thing. So look, that basically wraps up what I wanted to share with you from Jody. She talked a lot about Damien and a lot more about her speculation, thoughts, and feelings on his case, but that's available in bonus, because for now, it doesn't move us forward in the story. It's a great conversation. Like all of our bonus episodes, we encourage you to subscribe to hear it by visiting www.anchor.fm slash let's find Damien slash subscribe. Five bucks a month gets you at least an extra hour of content per week, almost every week. Sometimes it's only half an hour, but this week it's almost two full hours. So people are loving it. We think you will too, especially if you want to hear more from Jody. I'm going to transition to a quick mid-roll now to let you know all about your three options for providing tips on Damien. So get a pen or your phone out because here we go for that. And when we get back, regional researcher Jim Baumgrenz. Damien's case remains open with the City of Warren Police Department. Journalists can do a lot in these situations, but police have more resources than we can dream of. Detective Tiffany Dyke is the criminal investigator heading Damien's case up, and she's ready to hear from you. She told me. Call Tiffany at 814-723-2700 or email her at tdyke at police.cityofwarrenpa.gov. If you're scared of cops, fine. Be that way. Call Warren County Crime Stoppers instead. And if your information helps lead Tiffany to remains, Crime Stoppers is going to give you two grand. So, that'd be cool, yeah? Third option is, and will remain until Damien's found, Stacy at Two Moms Media. Message her on Facebook at Let's Find Damien. So Jim Baumgrantz has been writing the true stories of historical mysteries in the Pennsylvania wilds for years. Damien will be in his newest book, which he's currently writing, as he takes a break from murders in the Pennsylvania wilds to focus on missing people here for a bit. Here's Jim to tell you more. Part-time, full-time, I, I write historical uh, true crime books, um, focusing mostly on Pennsylvania wilds, which is 12 and a half counties, as you know. Uh, they consider Center County the half county because it's north of 80. It's in the Pennsylvania wilds. Um, I'm working on my sixth book right now, and it's actually missing in the Pennsylvania wilds. So it's all these people that went missing. So Damien will be in there, plus uh, you know people from who went missing from 1850 until today, you know, present day. I have some recent ones in there. You were telling me about some crazy ones from back in the day too. This is going to be a good book. Yeah, it it is, you know, and uh, and I I went out and asked people to email me because there's no records before. Uh, actually, if you go before 1990, there's there's no lists. Uh, you'll see a few on the internet missing people, but most of them are gone. The history, and even talking to the state police, they don't have a lists of anybody missing. You know. So I had to compile a lot of it just by, you know, researching the archives um, and then tips. People have sent tips to say my uh, great aunt disappeared in 1930. We could never find out another mention of her. And, yeah. you know, then I, I start researching. Don't always find them. Some, sometimes I do find them, you know, that they died in California in 1964. Obviously never reached back out to their families, you know, and that kind of, ties into my own family a little bit but uh, you know it, 
I started this. That's actually how I ran into your podcast because while I was researching murders, historical murders, I'd often come across, you know, uh, missing people. And I would just make a, a note. And I do have some missing children stories in, in my uh, El County series, McKean County series. But uh, I, I would just make a list. And I thought, to get away from murder a little bit, I'll go into missing people. And uh, then I found your podcast. Yeah. And, you know, well, then you were working on it. So, yeah. uh, so that, that's kind of what I do, writing, you know. This goes back to the last episode where we talked about the overlap between missing persons and homicide cases. It also ties into what Pete Carnavale described as the unusual thing about offering a reward for Damien. There are cases where people just walk away. It's possible a crime was not committed in Damien's disappearance. There's always the possibility that he had an accident, fell, got hurt, couldn't get help, and was just never found. I always try to think about things in terms of possibility versus plausibility, though, and for me, those theories just don't hold out. The likelihood that physical evidence wouldn't be found in the scenario of an accident is unbelievable to me. Not today. Not with the amount of increased use in the spaces where most people tend to think he wound up. Somewhere in Warren County's wild spaces. Jim was actually working in Warren County when Damien went missing, but he's going to talk about that toward the end of the next clip. What he's going to talk about first is the difference of reading newspaper accounts of murders and missing persons from the 1800s, the early 1900s, and in through the 50s and 60s. He describes newspaper coverage of murders, for instance, as more accurate, but I think it's actually that they're more descriptive, which means they're more editorialized and less based on just the facts. Listen to him describe it. You wouldn't find bones. What do you find as you're doing your research in terms of like contemporary mysteries and missing persons as opposed to historical in terms of physical evidence being found? Do you do you find that it's harder for physical evidence to just disappear like that today as opposed to back in the day? Or do you find that it happens just as much now? Wait, I think it's more tight lipped now, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, like the kid that just disappeared. I was talking about down in Caledonia. You know, they, they eventually charged two men with his murder, supposedly. Well, they, not supposedly, they really did. And, and it, you know, then, of course, all kinds of stories come up. And if you read three different articles, you'll find, you know, well, they found a body, had a bullet in the head and all this, but yeah. none of that was true. I think today, uh, if, you, if you look up, a, there's a girl missing from St. Mary's about 20 years ago. The rumors, yeah. but there's no... Uh, you can't find anything online. You can just find that she was last seen at this house. Yeah. With three, you know, guys from Buffalo. Yeah. You know, and it was drug related, to, supposedly. Right. Uh, but there's no other and information. That's, you're going on what a cop told a reporter and what a reporter, you know, interpreted that to mean and wrote down. And so you're already at two degrees of separation. Right. And so you are finding like when you, cause I, this is my one big that I've gone deep on and I don't have any frame of reference, but you find as you go through that a lot of times the accounts in the paper are not quite, it's like a big fish situation. Yeah. The murders in the, in the paper are actually very accurate before 1960 because actually before 1950, because back then they did uh, cordon off the crime scene. So okay. the reporters are often, Right there. Best, better than a cop, you know, police reports that I've read because the reporter would go in and he'd write down, you know, he or she'd write down, well, there's blood in the corner and, yeah. you know, splattered on the wall and you wouldn't see that on the police. That report. writer's brain, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they, they got to see it. So sure. actually, you know, uh, like, like a Damien's yeah. case, when he disappeared, I was working for uh, Universal Health Services, Clarion Psychiatric. And I, I would go to Warren one day a week, you know, okay. Warren County. But, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time on the mental health, Warren yeah. State Hospital campus. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that's where I met a lot of my, you know, consumers, customers, sure. whatever. And uh, I remember when he disappeared, because I, I actually was researching while I was working. Yeah. I was researching <laughs> a murder Guilty that took place inside uh, the, uh, the state hospital up there yeah. you know, from a worker. Right after that, I was driving home from uh, from Warren. It was real hot, sunny day, 
and I pulled off the side of the road between Ludlow and King, um, probably to you know, relieve myself right. or whatever. But you know, I noticed in the in the woods some clothes, okay. you know, which I thought was weird. And then I walked over, and it was a pair of jeans and a shirt. And uh, I know that's not. No backpack, but, right? No, <laughs> no backpack, crutches. No. Okay. No, because I would have found it. No, but I thought, <laughs> All right. I thought, well, you know, what is this? Because yeah. you know, you, you find shirts once in a while. You find underwear. Right. You find maybe a sock. You don't find the pants. Right. And, and uh, kind of party was this cat having? <laughs> yeah. In it, but it was so old that I, I knew it had nothing to do with game. Yeah. I didn't. I don't remember if I read what he was wearing that day, but. I thought, you know, so I, I spent some time walking around the woods sure. there looking to see is right. there something else here. And, you know, and I never actually stopped back there. I was just thinking that the other day. Ah. I stop and look. You yeah, know. you should stop. Because I mean, the memory might be bad, but yeah. I, I'm thinking. Um, One genre of Damien information I don't get a lot of at all are tips about having found physical items related to his case, which stands to reason, Right. Recently, I did have one person reach out to tell me they found a physical item that they thought might be of evidentiary value, but never said anything about it. So I'll be going through that tip to see if there's anything to suggest it's important to us and keeping you posted if it is. Memories like this, though, for whatever reason, are pretty hard to come by, at least for me. Jim doesn't believe that stuff he found was Damien's, and I'm sure it wasn't either, but it's interesting that not a shred of anything related to Damien ever turned up in the 20 years since he's gone missing. It's odd to me that there wasn't something turning up of his over the years. I often wonder how many people like Jim have stumbled on something kind of odd out in the woods but thought, hell, that could be a deer femur for all I know because I'm just out here hiking and I'm not an anthropologist and... Also, do deer have femurs? We're just humans. Confusing. You get the point. If you've ever been confronted with the skeletal remains of anything lacking a skull, could you clearly identify the species off the top of your head? Have you ever encountered a pile of bones or a femur, random and lonely, somewhere along some back trail? If you use the woods and haven't, then welcome to the wonderful world of outdoor adventure because you've clearly never been here before. I've had people reach out and say that they don't know if it was him or not, but they think they saw Damien downtown weeks, you guys, weeks after he went missing. So how many people used those woods in the month between his actual disappearance and that first reservoir search in June of 2002? And then I'm straight back to that week between the time he was reported and the time he actually went missing, May 25th to June 3rd. That is such a vast amount of time for things to have been moved, changed, hidden, redistributed, what have you. Unfortunately, it's answers like these that just don't exist yet. So you have to break those questions down as a researcher into smaller questions and find something to start gnawing on. People make a huge deal about the research you've done as a journalist, and for good reason. We're in the business of telling the truth, and there's nothing at all better than a physical document to get a writer or a researcher's heart beating a little faster because we know how much you maniacs love proof. We love it too. It's validating. It lets us know that we haven't been tarrying too long down the wrong path. Most often, those moments when we find the best documents happen during quiet, minuscule moments in the library basements and random sources attics the law libraries, and historical society reading rooms. The absolute best is when it's not a hassle to get access to your records and no one feels the need to supervise you while you do so. Here's Jim to describe that experience. Uh, she gave me full access to the basement and that's where all the... You go through the Terman Oyer book and you can get the, the name and it'll tell you everything that happened in court. Yeah. And then you take the corresponding number to... Uh, the sessions, which, you know, say it was 1897 September session, yeah. the, fifth, the fifth court case. And you'll find a whole file on that murder. And some of them have court transcripts in it, some have pictures, some have, uh, uh, it has all the warrants from when they were originally arrested sure. and what the person said. And uh, so you know, I, I get a lot of information there. Yeah. You know, but uh, It's fascinating to me to watch how a case develops and how the narrative, the story, the living story of what actually happened changes through 
and it develops in it as it should, I think. I think that's natural and, and right. But, like, it's fascinating to see from the ground, the patrolman who arrests the guy to the time it hits court, the development of that narrative and who all is a part of that is fascinating. And then, yep. You know, so I mean, you know, some of them are so old. It's comical, probably, to read them well, the way they yeah. wrote them, even. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't really run into, though, you know, uh, a blatant uh, miscarriage of justice. You know, okay. a lot of them said they were innocent. But, yeah. You know, I I, mean, I haven't really seen that. You know, I've seen a lot of guilty people, which I consider guilty, let off with a prime suspect because there was no evidence. Sure. You know, like the the kid I was talking about earlier in Caledonia where they just found shreds of clothes. Mm-hmm. They arrested two guys like eight months later after they found the clothes because the one they had a uh, a camp in in the area where the body was found and two brothers were fighting in the camp and the one brother said to his younger brother they were fighting he said if you, you know if, if you do that I'm, I'm gonna take care of you like I took care of yeah. Andrew Bateman and that was enough to arrest him and then since his buddy owned the uh, owned the camp with them they arrested the buddy so these two herdsmen as they called them were charged with Bateman's murder but you know I think even today you know, of course, they denied saying that, and sure. uh, they, they, it didn't go anywhere because there was no body right. either. You know, so, um, but you know, just to show, they thought they had enough to police back then. Yeah. that was 1907, and by that, I mean, to arrest somebody. So, if people like Jim and me and Brian can just go find out a bunch of information, how did we learn what to look for and where? Me and Brian, we learned in a newsroom, but. Jim told me a little bit about what it was like standing on the edge of his first mystery and where he first went to figure out what truth there might be to it. Let's listen. So when you got started, did you have what, like, okay, you want to go investigate some story you heard. Did you have any idea where to even start? Uh, well, how, how I got into it was uh, growing up, my dad, you know, would tell me stories and he always talked about you know, this pickle barrel murder in Johnsburg, and the guy was cut up in 11 pieces, and he was supposedly, you know, put in a barrel, and then, you know, the case was ruled, you know, a suicide, you know, and, uh, you know, so, so, so how do you find out if that's true? Now, he told me this, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s, you know, so there, there really wasn't, there's no date, you know what I mean? Like, he just, well, this happened in Johnsburg, you don't know when Urban happened. legend. Urban right. legend, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, because I didn't really believe it, but yeah. I always wondered, you know, why would my dad make that up? That legend that a friend of a friend told right. me, that's always ground zero for where you start. That's what you're starting with. It was a suicide. You know, <laughs> yeah. like everybody would tell that story because it was, you know. That was the Infamous, legend. Yeah. but you didn't know when it was. And, you know, you know the, the libraries really didn't have, if they did have microfilm, I mean, I didn't see it. Well, well of course, I was just a young, young kid then, so... I wasn't going to go to the library. No, 13-year-old is, like, offended that there's not microfilm at the library. Right, you know. <laughs> so, years later, though, um, and I heard other stories, too, you know, my teen years, you know, about a guy fed to the pigs. And, and then I wondered, is that true? Or is I sick of the guy that told me that? I like to tell BS stories. So, so I thought, well, you know, is that true? And around 2000, I'm skipping some parts there, but... Um, I had found, you know, some true stories from the area during, you know, in the past, but the pickle barrel murder wasn't in there. Um, so I, I called around, I did some research online, and I found, you go to the, the prothonotary's office, that's who files court indictments. So I didn't know what I was walking into, whether I was going to be able to find out. Did you even know what you were asking for, or were you just like, listen, I want to know about this pickle barrel guy. But you know you don't mean? even know what to ask for. You're just like, I want to know about... I, I kind of said, yeah, well, you know, what about old murders? And they're like, oh, there's piles of them in those books over there. And yeah. that was it. They didn't know, you know. Were they like, oh, go ahead, have a look? I yeah. love those. I love those places. And those people, they're like, I don't know. Go have a... I don't give a shit. Go look. Yeah, and they said, go ahead. You know, That's a kid it, in a candy store for me. Yeah. And it took me like five <laughs> trips to get back there. And then I, you know, I found the death certificate yeah. of the Scopoletti. The guy was cut up 11 pieces in a barrel. And it did say, you know, uh, suicide. Obviously, it said homicide. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, wow, you know, this really did happen because yeah. it just, just sounded, uh, you know, 
like crazy talk. Yeah, like nobody was cut up in 11 pieces, put in a barrel. I mean, you know, what, what? You would hear about that. Today right. we think you would hear about that, you know. And I did hear about it all and, the time. But somebody would know. But somebody nobody would, knew that. Yeah. You know. It feels like a legend or a rumor or a lie. But I went on, uh, this years ago, I went on radio, like around Halloween, local radio. And I talked about what I had found, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I find out where the suicide came from. Um, That's cool. See, you were like, I'm not satisfied. I want to know who came up with that. Yep, same. Well, I'm the, the exact same way. The detective at the time, Leo Werner, was the Dutchman, German. Um, I talked to one of his relatives. You know, he died in 1957. But they said uh, his one of his famous expressions whenever there was a murder in the immigrant community was to raise his hands and say clear case of suicide because he knew they would shut up. You know, they'd put a wall against him. They'd never talk to him. Yeah, disempowered community, yeah. All the windows would shut and nobody would come out when he went knocking. So he's a clear case of suicide as a joke. Like, that clears the case. We're done here. Move on to the next one, yeah. So so there was some truth to that, you know. But but he did declare it a suicide, you know. But I, I went on a radio, it was like a Halloween show, and I talked about the Pickle Barrel murder. And uh, this was back in the 2002, probably, around area. There was, uh, you know, there wasn't caller to ID on the phone. Yeah. Um, no, there had no bet. But there wasn't on my phone. Yeah, there <laughs> I wasn't guess. on, I, I did know, not live that fancy life. I don't so. think I had one, but I remember it aired on a Saturday morning and the phone rang and I picked up. And the guy on the other end, had a very deep Italian. Now this this murder happened late the twenty sixth. Mm-hmm. Okay, had a very uh, deep Italian accent, and he says, "You know who killed the? You know who killed him? You know." Yeah. And I'm trying to ask, "Well, who are you?" you know? Yeah. You know who killed him? I said, "No, you know." No, I mean, identify I an, yourself, sir. I have an idea, but you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't know nothing. Nope. <laughs> and he uh, he says he killed. You know, he was killed by his bodyguard. He says he was messing around with his wife and. You know, everybody, you know, everybody our, knows that. Our community <laughs> knew about that, you know, and, and in our community, in our, you got to be part, you got to be part of right. that in group to get that story. Uh, you know, now after about 45 minutes, I said, who are you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And Dude. there was a local guy lived in Ridgeway, Carmen, who owned a men's clothing shop. <laughs> but I mean, he didn't, you know, he wouldn't say who he was. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't know you. And he acted like he knew me. He knew yeah. all about me. Yeah. But uh, so I, I thought, oh. Then I went back, you know, I assumed that's who did it anyways. And when I did write the story finally in 2018, um, I did get some of Warner's notes. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's who it was. Yeah. Well, that's what we want. Now that guy disappeared. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the night of the wake, he walked out to have a cigarette at the family's house when they had to doing and he was never seen again yeah. officially. You know, so so he'll be in the book The Prime Suspect. Yeah. Now more research finds out they believed he went to Chicago, mm-hmm. changed his name, waited until that detective moved on to a different position and came back and lived the rest of his life quietly. Assume name. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's usually some truth the yeah. story, but you know that. But, the, but like I said, I did find out. You know that was true. Yeah, I found out the the pig. You know the guy feeding the victim that the one old guy at the camp told me about. There's some truth to that, but mm-hmm. you know, like the the murder really did happen in this yeah. hollow and all that. Big it's Fish, just, just like know. that movie Big Fish, where right. you know it's it's true, but it's not as spectacular not as he made it sound. Yeah, of course, I wrote about that one, and I add a little bit to it. But, yeah, you know, just from uh, some of the notes I read, because there was never a trial in, in the second case. Mm-hmm. Either case, there was never a trial because the guy was declared insane that mm-hmm. killed this guy in this hollow. Um, so, you know, like, yeah, but they found bones in the pig pen. Wow. But they, in 1929, they couldn't really figure out if they were male or female. Yeah. So if you found yourself getting wrapped up in those side stories Jim was telling, again, you're going to want to get this week's bonus because our conversation is just an hour and a half of Jim telling me crazy good stories from history while we smoked on my porch and me telling bad jokes and laughing at myself because anxiety. Great, great times. But I do want to start to wind down this episode by sharing one last Jim clip with you. I asked him how he determines whether something is shareable or not. That is, 
whether some treasure trove research day is one he can share with the world in his next book. Here's what he said. What's your standard when you're doing research? Are you like, oh, this is interesting, but I can't write about it yet because I don't know. And then at what point do you cross that hurdle? Is it on a case-by-case basis? If Yeah, I mean, there's... I can usually find information. Okay. You know, there's, there's some... Uh, I, I can't write about because I can't uh, substantiate. Right. Um, I, I'll give you one in particular. I was told this years ago by a, a, an old timer who died years ago. But he said in uh, Johnsonburg, there's a big paper mill. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, area, I smelled it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it smelled pretty bad yesterday. But there was a, a huge section that was called the flats, and that's where most of these murders that I write about took place and it was totally wiped out in 1942 so now it's just grasslands and there's a CVS pharmacy that floods every so often now. <laughs> just no. a bunch of fields and a CVS yeah. that's shady as hell I love it yeah, it's I don't want to go see all it now all the houses the hotels everything gone, gone. pictures of it um, but <laughs> the paper mill had been there for you know, 100 years and this local big shot at the paper mill would Drives through the flats. Never went into a flats, they always told me, unless you were a certain uh, Italian ancestry. Okay. Because, you know, that, that was a no-go zone. That, yes. But this big shopper in the paper mill would fly through there in his car every day. He ran over a young kid oh. from whose father was part of the Black Hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but that neighbor yeah. shot because he knew he was dead. He was dead. Yeah. So the story goes... You know, they waited after the funeral, and this guy would come through the flats, you know, every night after work, and they they dropped a telephone pole. So he got stopped. Yeah. And then he was found dead along the railroad. Yeah. You know, clear case suicide. I mean, clear Um, case. And that was never investigated, you know, but the guy told me a story. The problem I have with that is, and then I reached out to some people who knew, Mm -hmm. who would know, who, who, they're elderly, but they do give me a nod, yes or no. Yeah. They say, yeah, it is true. Yeah, or, yeah. They won't give me the names. Yeah. I haven't been able to. I find some kids that were killed by cars down there. Yeah. Uh, I haven't found yeah. the name of the guy. And that's so kind of, yeah. About it, you know? Exactly. And that's what's hard with this case, you know, after my last episode, after five, <clears throat> excuse me, after four, everybody wanted to kind of know what that theory is. And, you know, I have a right. burden of responsibility to the people who shared information and, and also to the truth. Like, I'm out here for the truth. So do, do you ever come across a source and you're like, oh, this is bullshit, I'm out of here? Like, how do you evaluate your sources? or Not just people sources, but even document sources. What well, kinds I, of things I, are red flags for you? Well, uh, it's hard to verify anything because everything I'm writing about yeah. was before 1960. Um, but and you would think, very tight. You would think that nobody knows anything about these yeah. these murders that happened in the twenties. Uh, I got well. It's not egg in the face, but I wrote a story, and I actually I had a court testimony on mm-hmm. it, where this girl, uh, young girl, in Johnsburg again. And I hate keep saying Johnsburg because like, yeah. oh, we're not talent. singling you out, Johnsburg. <laughs> yeah. It just so happens. But she, she had lived in a, a boarding house with her husband, and she was only nineteen. She was pregnant. She had already had three kids and pregnant four kids, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, so when she was fifteen, she married this guy who was in his thirties. You know, and he would leave the boarding house. He lived upstairs, and then the basement of the boarding house had single men living in men, men. Perfect. Yeah. So my husband would go to work and then um, he'd go work at the mill and then Come and on home. Yeah, yeah. Well he he got according to her testimony, you know, uh, the husband come home well he he went to work and he came running back to the house and he caught a young guy from upstairs in bed with his wife. And there was a gun, you know, on the post of the bed. And she pulled the post, the gun out and she shot the guy in the head. Mm-hmm. And she said, he was raping me, mm-hmm. you know. And then she <laughs> cried and she said, you know, he was doing this to me. 
whenever you went to work, he would come up, threaten me, and, mm -hmm. you know, with a baby, or kill the baby, and it would rape me. Mm -hmm. And she said, I had told my husband about this, so he, that's why he come running back to see if he could catch this guy. Yeah. Yeah, so she was, charges were dropped against her, you know, rape and all that stuff. And um, they, uh, you know, she was exonerated. And that would be the end of it. This is 1920 or whatever. So a couple of years ago, I was at a senior center and I was discussing the case and then an elderly lady raised her hand. And she says, you know, I grew up, you know, right across the street from where that happened, you know. Mm -hmm. And she was born in the 20s. She says, uh, everybody in the neighborhood knew that was all a bunch of bullshit. She says, uh, you know, the... <laughs> everybody was talking on their porches. Everybody knew. Yeah. <laughs> she said, they were having an affair, and her husband heard about it. And he came back to catch him in bed, and she thought to save face, she pulled she that do pistol. She'd do it. Yeah. Yeah. That was so, immediately what I thought when you laughed. And then yeah. you looked real serious. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have laughed. But no, that was in my immediate thought. But that, that was... The real truth, but you would yeah. never find that in a court in case. a newspaper or right. courtroom. Yeah, and it, it wasn't in her testimony. It, well, of course not. Yeah. You know, and the husband, you know, quietly moved the, you know the family away. You know, but uh, but I, I thought you know I thought oh geez you know now I wrote the story, but the story's true. Yeah, according to court testimony. According to court testimony, and that's what's crazy, and that's you know I get a lot of people calling me when I publish it. You know, it's a, I, my stomach hurts when I publish because I'm like people are gonna call me and question me, and I'm gonna be like listen. I know that what you're telling me might be true, but this is what I can say is what I found out. Now, if you want to come on my show and tell me that story, you can tell me that story. That's great. But I can't just come out and be like, hey, somebody said Damien joined the circus and that's what we're going to go, you know? So yeah. I got to have, I got to have a, a resource to back that up, you know? And that's, you know, like maybe that lady was, but I tend to believe her. Sure. <laughs> and that's what's hard. That's what's interesting, you know? The discrepancy between the official record and, and the uh, public record is so different in so many cases. And there are times where in my guts, I'm like, that feels true to me. And this feels like bullshit in the public record. But what this person is telling me feels true. So I get a bug up my ass. I can't stop that. I'm like, I'm going to find out a way to make that connection so that I can figure out if that's true or not. It, it drives me nuts not to know. And, it, and that's, you know, I... Those are, you know, cases that I've written. You know, that's not the only one. There's only two that I, I know. The side I wrote wasn't necessarily what happened. Sure. But it, it's what went through the newspapers, what yeah. went through the court systems. So. And that's the story you're telling. Right. That's the story you're telling is the story of the story, not necessarily the story. You're telling the story of the rumor. And, right. and you're attempting in these stories to puzzle them out. And you can't always do that, you know. That's what I love about this gig, as opposed to straight journalism. Right. You can deal with speculation, and you can, if you can be responsible about it. You know, there's so many bad resources and people who would just make sensational stories out of nothing. But if you can find good resources, I love that kind of, you know, yeah. speculation. Yeah, you know, with Damien's case. So what the hell does any of this have to do with Damien Sharp, right? Everything to the people who want to find him. As with Jim's historical mysteries, investigating this case requires an ability to recognize valuable tips versus red herrings. It involves developing a better rapport with people than dusty books and quiet library nooks. Sadly for my anxiety. Not sadly for me, though. I mean, please know that I have a mild temporary panic attack every time my phone rings, but like, even if it's my best friend, because it's an interaction that I didn't get to prepare for. The way to the heart of this case, you guys, is through your stories, and I want to hear them all. It's from those first stories that I found my way to James on Prospect Street at the mansions, and it's because of the months and months I spent in those library basements and prothonotary's offices, district justice lobbies and microfilm stations, accessing public information, using it to ask questions of more and more people, that I arrived at James with a theory. Again, memories and a lack of hesitance on the part of officials from the time to share information would be the gold standard here, but I don't expect those anytime soon. So I'm just going to tell you what I have. And as I have with so many other questions and uncertainties over the course of the past six episodes, I'm going to let you make up your own minds. So before reaching out to James, I wanted to know everything I could about him. 
I was about to ask him if he killed Damien. I mean, it might be good to know if he were blatantly lying to me about the easy shit right off the bat, right? So I spent one whole day at the Warren County Prothonotary's office. I spent a ton of those days there, but this one stands out in particular because it's the day I found a letter. Still wondering whether I even had the right guy at all, no one had confirmed James's name to me yet as having officially been related to the case in any way aside from Dana and Stephen, insofar as they both were told that he was the last person to have seen Damien. Shit, I still had to confirm that with James. If I was going to say that James was the last one to see Damien, I wanted something. Somewhere to at least imply it to me on paper first. Wish in one hand, right? But as I scrolled through page after page of one particular file, the one where I learned about his August 2002 fight outside of Freddy's after Damien went missing, this handwritten letter just smacked me right in the face against all the properly spaced and formatted legal documentation dryness. This letter was received at the Warren County District Attorney's Office on November 10th, 2003, as James was awaiting sentencing on that Freddy's sidewalk assault deal. It reads... Dearest Sheriff, first clue, I'm not here, nor will I return. I feel my sentence is going to be unjust because the DA openly admitted that he was coming after me for the murder of Damien Sharp. I have a problem with this because I did not murder him. So instead, I'm getting the fuck out of your Commonwealth state, shove it straight up your asses. Second clue, in less than 14 hours, I'll be gone, so hurry. Thank the DA for missing all my beautiful flowers. 36 pounds of sweet, plump tomatoes. So I'm heading for a warm, pussy-filled place with a pocket full of money and a book bag full of ripe, luscious tomatoes. Have a nice day. Before you ask, yes, yes, I reached out to District Attorney Hernan last winter to ask if he remembered the case. When he said he didn't and didn't keep any notes, I asked him if he remembered the letter James sent him. He didn't remember that either, so I sent him a photo of both pages with his office's stamp saying it was received there on November 10th, 2003, and I asked if he wanted to comment on it. He responded with just two words. No thanks. We'll talk more about that letter and my opinion of James's credibility as it has developed over the course of the past year in next week's episode. Smoke is a production of Two Moms Media and Your Daily Local. Created, written, and told by Stacey Gross. Executive producers are Stacey Gross and Brian Hagberg. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by Bob Gross. Voice acting by Frank Williams and Adam McCoy. Audio production, transcription, and cover art by Stacey Gross. Check out the show notes for links to our website, sources we used, and a full transcript of each episode. Visit us on social media at Let's Find Damien. If you like the show, tell everyone. Remember to follow the show wherever you're listening, rate, and review. It helps us out a ton.